Last week, we started a series, a short series, the three weeks that Pastor Ray is away. And Kevin and I are sharing up. I'm doing the first two sermons, and Kevin's doing the next. But we're calling it The Odds of 1 John, because there are five chapters in the book of 1 John. But we only have three weeks to preach. And so we decided that we would do chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5, the odd chapters. And that's why the name, odd, The Odds of First uh, John. Now, Kevin, I said in the first service, Kevin could do an odd thing and choose not to preach on chapter 5 next week. He could preach on chapter 2 or 4. That would be fine. It would be a little odd because we've been saying he's going to do chapter 5, but anything goes when you're preaching the odds of 1 John. Today, we're going to be focusing on 1 John chapter 3, and I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to that. We will have some slides on the screen, but I will be directing your attention to your own scripture all the while. In chapter 3, John is exploring a couple of real key issues. The first issue is the dynamics of a believer's struggle with sin and how this battle is won. He also clearly exposes possibly the most critical guidance for how God's people must live. He's talking about believers and followers of Jesus loving others, loving one another. I really like how chapter 3 begins and then ends. The opening and the ending verses are sort of like bookends, holding in extremely valuable truths for us to pay attention to today. So let's take a look at those first verse and the last verse. The first verse is, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Great news. Then the last verse of this chapter uh, gives us the reason why we can know and live in the truths of Scripture. John writes this. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. So within this chapter, we're going to encounter some difficult issues that all believers may struggle with. But we know that God both loves us, and he gives us the power of his spirit to move through them. So let's take a look at the first one first. The dynamics of a believer's struggles with sin and how this battle is won. Chapter 3 begins with the words of encouragement. We are the children of God. And John establishes the differences right away between a believer and a non-believer. Non-believers do not know him. That is, they do not have the free grace which comes from faith. I like always to say, however, that non-believers do not know him yet. All of our friends who are non-believers may soon know him. But John goes on to say believers do know God. Believers embrace the true gospel that John proclaims in the first chapter that we talked of last week. And believers also strive They also strive to live their lives walking in the light of God. 
And John also, right away, describes our future believers. He writes that when Christ appears, be it at our mortal death, or when he returns, all believers shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, pure and without sin. What John wants us to wants to reinforce is that when we see Jesus, we will reflect his glory and his majesty perfectly. He's our majestic Lord, and we will be as pure as Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. But then in this chapter, John takes a hard turn to discuss the taint of sin and our struggles with sin as believers. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. John writes, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sin, and in him is no sin. No believer reading these verses will have any concerns with what he taught here. Sin is lawless. And we all know that Jesus lived a sinless life. And he lived that sinless life and died that sin in a sinless way to take away our sins. But now take a look at verse 6. These two passages, verse 6 and 9, can cause believers discomfort and confusion. I'll read that. Verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, these passages can be difficult to read. That is, unless you have completely stopped committing sin. Looking at these passages again, no one who lives in them keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen or known them. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. Is John saying here that I am not saved if I'm continuing to have sin in my life? You may remember last week I was talking about how sin in our lives may cause us to have doubts. Doubts is a very common thing. As a pastor, I interact with people a lot, and they say, you know, uh, Dan, I, I doubt whether I'm really saved. And if you, if you uh, whittle it down to the core of the problem, it's always sin. And these passages don't help because they can have the force of causing us to question again whether we are truly saved. We have these questions because if we're being honest, we do continue to sin. The questions or doubts when reading passages like this can cause us confusion and discomfort. How do I reconcile? What I want to say is that this discomfort or confusion in this issue with this chapter may stem from a translation issue. You see, um, the the English translation that we have in front of us is accurate, 
but it can also be misunderstood or misread. Let's look at these passages again, but I'm going to have them in two different English translations, both having the same meaning. On the screen, you'll see it. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That's the NIV. And then the Christian Standard Bible says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. The Christian Standard Bible says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. There's subtle differences, but there is a difference. Let me explain this. In the Greek, in the Greek, the original Greek, the verb that John uses here for sinning is written in what is called a nomic present tense. What is a nomic present tense? The force of this tense in, is to refer to a general timeless act, fact, fact, a fact that can be true any time but not true all the time. And I want to say that again. It refers to a fact, a general timeless fact that can be true any time but not all the time. Now let me give you an example of this. Very simple. The wind blows. The wind blows. A true fact, but not true all the time. And so in the Greek in this passage, this is the present tense that John is using. And what it can mean here is that the believer may suffer from sin, but not all the time. In a sense, this means that he's not going to suffer all the time, but John is not saying that you have a free pass to sin. No way. He's no way saying that you have a free pass to sin. And he's not saying it's okay to sin. It's not even okay to sin sometimes. But John is also not saying that a person born of God does not ever struggle with sin. He's clearly teaching that because a believer has been born again... He has now received a new nature. And that new nature is the Spirit of God living within him. And for that reason, he can have no comfort in sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit living within your spirit cannot tolerate sin. A problem for us is that when we receive the new nature, when we were born again into Christ, we did not lose our old nature. Our new nature in Christ has ongoing conflicts with our old sinful nature. In Romans, Paul writes of this. This is what he wrote. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate what I do. Who will rescue this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul is right. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the answer. 
Trusting in the power of Jesus in our struggles with sin is where believers must John teaches that when we do sin, we have Jesus as our advocate, and we can go before the Father and confess our sins, and he will forgive us our sins. But we can also tap into the power Jesus has given us to break from the hold sin has on us and how it has on our lives. Look at verse 8 with me. John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was destroy the devil, to destroy the devil's work. Now, in the NIV translation of the verb to destroy, again, does not fully capture the power John means to describe. But we do see this in another English translation, and that is the um, Amplified Version. In the Amplified Translation, it's written like this, same passage. The reason the Son of God was made manifest was to undo the works of the devil. But here we have the full explanation of what that verb means. It is to destroy, as we see in the NIV, but it's also to loosen and to dissolve. To dissolve the works of the devil. Jesus not only gives us access to the Father for forgiveness, his power also effectively dissolves the devil's grip on us when it comes to sin. Apostle Peter talks of this in his letter. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need in life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may, have, may participate in the divine nature and what? Escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Before Christ, man was caught in the grips of the devil, unable to escape sin. Living in Christ, we can resist the devil's hold on us and move away from sin because that hold has been dissolved. He has no hold on us when we claim the power of Christ. Praise be to Jesus Christ, says Paul, and that's what I say too, huh? Now, John turns from sin to yet another issue, love, specifically loving one another. Look at me, look with me at verse 10. John writes, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. John is saying that people who are captive in sin are no different in God's eyes than people who do not love. You know, just today, somebody brought to my attention is there's so much hate in this world. If you want to see a comparison of hate, turn on one major network news and then turn on the next network news and just see what's going on here. And what happens is that people get blasted with this day in and day out all day long 
they go out into the world and they cannot love. It's a terrible fate. Now, John has an awful lot to say in chapter 2 and chapter 4 about love, and that's why I kind of quipped about Kevin being able to do something other than chapter 5 next week. But I wouldn't encourage you, after today, in your next quiet time, to open up 1 John and look at chapters 2 and chapters 4, because John writes some beautiful things about love and encourages us how to be loving to one another. But in this chapter, John is stating clearly what Jesus did on the cross is truly what love looks like. He boils it down to that. So we must try to respond and mirror his love in our hearts with actions and in truth, loving all people. This morning I saw a picture on Facebook, which can be a difficult place to go to as well. But I saw a picture on Facebook, and you know what the picture was? The picture was a picture of one of us, one of the men in our congregation who was in Fort Lauderdale with his hands on the shoulder of a person who lives without a home. And that person has been interacting with him for six months. And yesterday, that person prayed to receive Jesus Christ. I call that love in action. So read with me what John writes about love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know, Jesus' love for people had no boundaries. I believe we need to follow the same pattern for us. Wherever we are, whoever we meet, we always need We always need to follow Jesus' teaching on love. This is what Jesus wrote and recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus didn't write this, by the way. Jesus said this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even the pagans do that? As believers, we are to be guided by the way Jesus loved. Because not to love is sin. So I think John put these two Areas concern, of concern, struggles with sin and loving one another together for a reason. In each area, we struggle to respond as the Spirit of God living within us would have us act. But because of these struggles, we can seem to have 
no true peace or comfort. But he teaches in the same chapter that we can have peace. What he's meaning is, is that if we have problems where we fail and we fall into sin, or we have problems where we fail and we did not show love properly, and you got that gut feeling in your heart that, hey, man, I really messed up. This is what John writes. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. See that? God knows your heart better than you. Rest. Sure, you're going to make mistakes from time to time, but rest knowing that you are not yet what you will be. In Ephesians, Paul writes of this. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So trust that God wants you to have a content heart as you live your life in him. John closes this chapter teaching that with a content heart before God, we can expect that he will answer our prayers. And we need only to trust that how God answers will be by his perfect wisdom and by his perfect will for all things. But this is a good way to start the day every day. Everybody gets out of bed and puts their feet firmly on the ground. But before you stand up, I suggest you say a little prayer. And we go something like this. Father God, this is a new day. And I thank you for giving me this new day. Today, as I interact with people in the world, help me think, speak, and act in a way that you would have me speak, think, and act. Help me to live in love. And just show love to everybody that I come in contact with. Be with me, Father, today. Holy Spirit, guide my steps. Amen.